Hello and welcome listeners to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier, and we are here to talk about issues related to both addiction and recovery. Today, we have a very special guest who is not only my boss, although you don't act like a boss to me, but supervisor, um, a mentor, and a really good friend, Dr. Daniel Green. And Dan, I want to thank you for joining me. We've been working on trying to do this for quite some time. Uh, it's good to be here. There is a lot to say about what you've done over your career. How long have you been doing this? Do you know the number? Uh, well, uh, I saw my first client uh, in 1980. So I guess it's been a lot of years. Yeah. So that's four years more than how old I am. <laughs> so you, your experience is, is all over, but just a little bit of background, licensed psychologist, member of the National Register of Health Service Providers in Psychology. You joined New Life Resources, where we both are in 1988, and you have been the clinical director since 1991. An author, which we're going to talk about your book, and frequent speaker, you talk a lot about topics like guilt and shame, trauma, grief, forgiveness, and integration of faith and practice. So there's so much we could talk about, and you and I talk about plenty of stuff already. <laughs> yes, but the reason I wanted to have you on as a guest is to talk about work that you've been doing for a lot of your career. And when I first came to New Life, this is one of the things that I first learned about was on the topic of guilt and shame. And out of everything that I thought I was going to learn about mental health and families and couples and marriage work, the guilt and shame was one of the ones that grabbed my attention from the get-go. So what got you interested in, in really specializing and understanding guilt and shame? Yeah, that's a, a good question because it has been very influential in my career development. Um, getting out of grad school after my postdoc, um, as I'm in the real world, these topics of shame and then people talking about feeling guilty and the frustration, kind of the dead end that they experienced, this was coming up over and over again. And I looked back at all of my years of training, maybe two discussions in all of my training. And it, I was just so unprepared for this topic. And I saw that it showed up in anxieties, it showed up in addictions, it showed up in mood disorders, it showed up in family problems, and I did. It was showing up in every, every presenting problem. This phenomenon of guilt and shame. And I really just didn't know what to do with it. So in about 1990, I and a, a colleague, uh, Ingrid Lorenz, who was a social worker on our staff at the time, her husband, Mel, who's a pastor, my wife, a teacher, the four of us started a multi-year study trying to figure out how do we understand guilt and shame from our various professional um, uh, form, uh, perspectives. And out of that came a couple of books and then for me, just a lifelong study of the phenomena. That's incredible. Just recognizing that it's, it was missing, you know, like the education, the knowledge about it. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, especially in relation to addiction. Then taking a step further to like become, a, you know, a pioneer, someone that would study it to learn about it so that 
you know, future professionals can actually get that education that wasn't there? Yeah, at the time, there was very, very little. Um, John Bradshaw had a series starting in 88 on PBS, and that was about it. It just was just not in the professional literature. So this ties into a part about, I believe guilt and shame is something every individual could spend time learning about. And whether it's, you know, mental health issues, whether it's addiction, whether it's family, you know, relationships, all across the board, guilt and shame is experienced, but also we could teach it at a young age. Yes. You know, I put up there with coping skills. We could teach and educate people about it, but oftentimes people in our position, we do it after the fact, after it has already impacted them. So do you believe guilt and shame is something we could teach young kids? Well, I certainly know that we do teach them, often not intentionally. And a lot of times we're working with something decades later where they have learned perspectives about who they are or how they connect with others, et cetera, that they're so impaired, shut down, inhibited by this unresolved shame. No one intended for it, but it sure is present. And so I fully agree if we can be teaching how to identify and resolve at young ages, we're way ahead. Yeah, I put it up there with if we could put together like in my mind, I've had this, this idea of like teaching kids, like a course, like a mental, mental mm-hmm. health course or something like that. We would add in some coping skills and we, we'd add in some other dynamics about certain things like family systems or whatnot, but we'd also want to add in their guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe they could understand some of the very same things that we would talk about. It doesn't, have to be very complex. No, in fact, the, the basic etiology, the, the, the foundation of understanding how shame is activated and resolved, it's extremely simple and it's pervasive. It's in every interaction in, in some form or another. So I agree with you. This could be taught at a very young age. With my work with addiction, there's shame. There's a lot of shame going on in, in those issues in particular and there's even like i've read it where people have called it like it's a it's a shame-based disease can you talk about like the roles that guilt and shame play like in in relation to addiction yeah yes um in fact it was in the area of addiction that the first writing on the topic came into the mental health world um Let me just give a couple definitions that I think help set the stage for this. I understand, and the historical understanding of shame is it's this strong emotion in affect theory. We talk about shame is like the regulator or the brakes of the emotional system. It inhibits whatever it's associated with. It stops, covers, shuts down. That feeling of exposure takes our attention completely away from everything else just to that very painful sense or for others it's numbness but it has an inhibitory function guilt i came to understand uh in a historical sense 
um, rather much more cognitive than emotional. That guilt, being responsible for transgression, wrongdoing, out of bounds. Guilt, either guilty or innocent. The emotion that goes with it, that's shame. And when I recognize that shame is activated anytime a person experiences a disconnect, a break, a separation, that inhibitory emotion, shutting them down, that's going to regulate. It's going to be very influential in them. So how does that relate then to an addiction? Well, when we see someone involved in patterns that are having negative consequences in their lives, there's a great disconnect between how they want to be and how they are. And that pain, that numbness, that sense of badness, that they may not even be able to put words to it because emotions often are way beyond language. That inhibitory sense, people are highly motivated to get relief. How do I get relief? Well, the object of addiction so often offers relief, even if only for moments. But as happens with an addictive process, there then is only a partial reduction and then there's more pain. And so we see the addictive pattern continuing. The engine of that pain is shame. Now it might be they have a loss, but because of that emotion of shame inhibiting, they're not able to process the loss and resolve it. Or they might have a situation where there's you know, maybe they've been betrayed or something. We could find many powerful events in their life that will evoke lots of emotions. But what happens with shame is it shuts those emotions down. So they're not able to resolve them, leaving them in a pain that they're seeking relief from. And until the shame is resolved, we see they're going to be seeking some way to get relief from that pain of shame. And the two things that that really stand out about it is it's almost like being stuck like in that cycle, like on a on like a, a racetrack, so to speak. Uh-huh. And shame is like where the person is probably wanting to exit or wanting to not do this anymore. Like they they tell themselves this is the last time or I can't do this anymore. But it's like shame is almost like that turn that just keeps them going like another, like, here we go again. Here's another lap around that we're about to do. Because it's inhibiting, the thinking gets messed up. Technical term I like to use. (laughs) Thinking gets really messed up. And so the person starts to believe, if you knew me, you wouldn't accept me. You wouldn't love me. You wouldn't. Uh, care for me or the thinking can get messed up that I can't or I don't deserve or I'm just so bad and so then the thinking further disconnects disconnects from other people disconnects from reality disconnects from themselves and the shame that emotion intensifies that's like going around that track faster and faster that it now is so automatic they cannot imagine anything else 
Yeah, it feels like almost it becomes so the the idea of dealing with the shame or, or feeling the shame and that vulnerability becomes less and less tolerable. And drugs only reinforces it because drugs teaches you about numbing and escaping mm -hmm. and avoiding, but never addressing it. So we are like on a high octane fueled vicious cycle very vicious and especially with addiction where the behavior can happen multiple times a day mm -hmm. like this isn't just one behavior or one action that we know shame can over one decision you make or one action you have taken shame can carry with you and hold power for a very long time but now we're talking about something that you are doing like is someone I have using three times a day or they are lying multiple times a day or they are mm -hmm. stealing to fund a habit and to do all this like that is just revving up that vicious cycle that we're seeing. You used a real key word just a moment ago. You talked about being vulnerable in order to meet our human needs of knowing and being known, loved, being loved, connecting. We must be vulnerable, but shame says that's impossible. That is going to destroy your life. If you're vulnerable, everything will fall apart and you can't tolerate that pain. So the message of shame takes us in the complete opposite direction of what's needed to live well. And vulnerability is very hard with just, I mean, it's not an easy thing to just for anyone, but no, with, with addiction, I see people who have that stunted emotional development, mm -hmm. their, their vulnerability is years behind in development. They, they haven't connected with emotions mm -hmm. for some people that I've worked with for years. You know, once they stop using, then all of a sudden, like they get hit with all these emotions and part of them, they talk about how they haven't felt this way since they were like young adolescents because of how much they've been using. Yeah. And that disconnection, we could talk about between people believing like if you knew me, you wouldn't accept me. But inside that thinking and feeling, it's almost like they're two separate people inside one body. And the feeling is where the pain is. So, so often people are pushing it away, but the shame distorts it. So they're not even sure what they're pushing away. They're just trying to get away. And so the object of the addiction, that's the hope of at least temporary relief from this pain. One thing that I've encountered, not necessarily with the individual themselves, but with family members, with sometimes different people in their, in their lives, believing that you can shame someone into changing or shaming them into stopping using or drinking or gambling, whatever the case may be. You know, my first question is, why do people think shame is an answer to stopping? And does that, does that work? Does that help someone? Yeah, this is a great question because it's got a lot of features to it. On the one hand, imposing shame on another is a way to manipulate them. Not necessarily in the direction you want to, 
but it does have influence on people. When we shame another, we point out we're disconnected, we're separated, you are lesser, but if you do what I say, I'll connect with you and you'll get relief of your shame. Now, advertisers do that all the time. We see that in marketing <laughs> all the time. Buy our product, you'll be better. Now, what happens in interpersonal relationships? Often what happens is you get a little bit of behavioral compliance and the wound is deeper, the pain is greater, and the desire for relief is even stronger. So people are thinking, about, when I shame that person, I see, oh, look, they just changed their behavior. For a little bit, a little bit. But what's happening inside is their magnification of that painful inhibiting emotion, shutting them down, splitting them further apart. And that's going to prompt them to get relief, which fuels the addictive pattern. I mean, it sounds like short-term relief followed by long-term misery. Yes. Like, <laughs> And for the people who think they're helping by shaming, they tend to get more and more frustrated and angry that they're not getting the outcome they want. And sometimes I see it, it ups then. Like they think they have to do it like, more severe or they have to add yep. on to it to try and make it work not kind of realizing that that's if it didn't work the first time that way doing more of it's probably not the answer no it's actually for the person struggling with the addictive pattern that person is being wounded more deeply and wounding more deeply doesn't facilitate the healing right yeah and i think that's important for and I think sometimes, you know, impulse shame, not always intentional, not purposeful. Some people try, probably thinking that they are doing what might help. And maybe they see it short term. That's why they get this hope or idea that it's working. But I think it's important for, you know, family members, loved ones to to learn about that shaming mm -hmm. someone to stopping or changing while it might provide some short term relief like long-term, it's a bigger wound. Yes. And, and that's not going to be, that's going to be more challenging to heal. It really is for the need to connect, which, and that's the human need that we have. The shame is a block, a wall. And as the shame gets more and more intense, even the a possibility of a connection gets further and further remote for the person. And we can talk about a downward shame spiral to where they can despair, hopelessness. And do you think that's hard for someone with an addiction to talk to other people about that shame that they feel because it could be like misconstrued is like a, a pity party or a woe me after the addiction has more than likely impacted the lives of many people mm -hmm. that going to some people and saying the shame they feel, I can see that that's very difficult to do. It really is for all people the greater the shame we're wrestling with, the harder it's going to be to become vulnerable. And we're going to see 
change is resolved by connecting. To connect, we must be emotionally vulnerable. But when shame is active, it makes emotional vulnerability exceedingly hard. Not only because emotionally we're just split apart inside, but the thinking can get very destructive. That if I share this, you'll have no respect for me. If I share this, you'll think I'm having a pity party. If I share what I'm experiencing, you'll think I'm making excuses. If I'm thinking that way, no connecting is going to happen. I'm going to go off, find a way to feel better, get some relief. And I think that's that's a huge reason why when I see people with, with substance use disorders and, and gambling issues, pornography, you know, that is definitely an area that's more silenced, that they are fearful of talking about it or acknowledging it because of thinking that, oh, it's going to be seen as me making excuses uh -huh. or poor me after what I've just done to my family. But it, it is necessary. Part of that needs to be done for connection to happen. Absolutely. To connect with another person, I need to be able to reveal what it's like to be me and receive what it's like to be you. But shame gives us the thought, the message we often have with shame is, if I show you, you won't accept it. If I show you, you'll hurt me with it. And so that's a hard one to overcome. Right. How do I become vulnerable? I've got this tension between I need closeness, but I need safety. And the shame's telling me it's not safe to be vulnerable, but I can only connect if I'm vulnerable. It's a great tension that we're in. Now, one of the areas in particular, and I'm, I'm, I'm upset at my own field of addiction recovery, is part of the only beginning information on guilt and shame was through substance use, right? Like you were saying. Yeah. So, but I've my issue with that is I still believe it is largely ignored in in treatment, in evidence-based treatment. So I did a little research. And so we're gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question and there's there's gonna be answers. I'm gonna see if you can guess the right answer to it. Uh -oh. Okay. So part of it is I read over six treatment manuals that are evidence-based for substance use disorder. I went over one that was about um, marijuana, one that was anger management, one for stimulants. There was one for addressing needs for women with substance use. There was a mindfulness one and there was a, a men in recovery. I went through the entire treatment curriculum and I searched for the words shame, ashamed, and guilt. And I totaled the number of times those words were shown. Okay, so I reviewed over 1,325 pages. Okay. So here's my question. How many times combined did those three words show up in over 1,325 pages? So is it A, 51, B, 163, 
C, 279, or D, 352? I'm going to go with A. It's actually B. Good. So it's 163. Okay. So a lot, not a lot more than A, but that is, that's like nothing. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is not, those are three words that I included that probably added to the, to yeah. the number. And if you were to, when we sit down with a real person, wrestling with addiction they're going to have those words and those emotions are going to be expressed readily right they can it's recognize it there oh absolutely it, it colors everything so so why is that and, and you're you were talking about how it was ignored in other areas of mm -hmm. focus how we can see it in a lot of areas that we treat and this example of what I did just shows that guilt and shame like continues to be ignored when it comes to using something like evidence-based. Like why, why is it still ignored? I think one of the reasons why is shame is an emotion. And it, yes, it impacts thinking, it impacts behavior, but it's primarily an emotion. And most evidence-based treatments are far more cognitive and change the thinking, change the thinking. Well, here's the issue with shame. Changing the thinking just doesn't really work very well. It doesn't resolve the shame. Shame is an um, embodied emotional phenomena that the whole person's involved. So changing the thinking sometimes just prompts the shame to be hidden even further, but it's yeah. still greatly impacting them. I can see in my mind some of those, you know, you have a thought, here's your feeling, here's an action. Yeah. You, know, you change your thought, you'll get a different feeling. But the problem with that is with shame, you just can't change that thought and then just automatically feel different. Cause you might not right. even, you might not even believe that thought. You might think that thought is nowhere even near an accurate portrayal or depiction of how you view yourself. So we can't just say, I'm gonna have better thoughts and that'll give me a better feeling and take away shame. And the emotion of shame inhibits by its very function. It's sort of the brakes of the emotional system. So it's inhibiting our capacity to benefit from thought. It's inhibiting our ability to process all the other emotions. The resolution is gonna require a much more embodied response than just a cognitive or a behavioral response. Yeah, I mean, that's, when I started learning about guilt and shame from you, it was one of the things that I started bringing more into when I worked with, with clients and patients because after I could start seeing their shame and hearing them express it or talk about it, I was able to do a better job of educating them about what was going on and what was happening. So I, you know, I remember when you showed me this, you had, you know, connection and disconnection on opposite sides. And there was a, there was a, 
align and then you, in the middle was shame causes that break in connection. Uh-huh. And whenever I would recognize that, I would do that on a piece of paper and I would show the individual what was happening and they could relate to it. Like they could easily relate to that's what they're experiencing and like some disconnection, whether it was because it was between me and something that happened even, or if it was something that was happening with a, a friend or a family member, they could acknowledge that and they could definitely recognize what that was, but they also didn't know what to do next. Yes. And from you, I learned about defining guilt, defining shame, but also talking about the four ways of connecting. Mm-hmm. I always go over those with somebody when I do my education piece on shame. So can you, can you go over those four ways of connecting? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll even tease people, uh, have this tattooed on the inside of your eyelid. So you always have this available to you. (laughs) Shame is elicited. It's brought forth. It's turned on when we experience a disconnect. The disconnect might be between ourselves and another person, might be between ourselves and our own value system, but there's a break. I anticipated there would be connecting. It didn't happen. It stopped. And that emotion we don't have to learn this. We're wired for this. It automatically occurs. Now we stay, that emotion stays with us. We are influenced by that emotion until we experience a reconnection. So very simple formula, disconnect, evoke shame, reconnection, releases shame. Well, where, where do we reconnect? Well, the first option, a safe other person. And that's usually where we want to go. When you think about human development, that little infant, that's the only option they had, connecting with another person. So you pick up this little infant and it calms when they're being held. And what do they do? They look at the face and they study the eyes and they calm. When they're separated, as they start to develop object permanency, when they're separated, then they're distressed. But when they're returned and and held, they learn to calm, just that face and that connecting. Well, as we continue to mature, we'll see little kids will run off and then they get distressed and they run back to the parent, to the caregiver, and they calm. We get a little bit older, maybe a few decades older. And when we experience distress, We want to reconnect. We want to find that person that we can be seen by and we can see them. We can know they can know us. It calms us. But very often that person is not available to us. There might be a great person in our life, but the person's at work right now. Or sometimes we're with that person and that person is doing something else, they're involved, or they put up a wall because they're upset about something else or whatever. In order to connect with a safe person, they have to be both available and vulnerable simultaneously. When that happens, we get the reconnect, we get release. And that's why sometimes when somebody understands your story, it's like, oh, wow, weight lifted off me. Or someone we can make eye contact and I don't feel so alone, I feel some connecting. A second option that we have to connect, 
Second option, as we grow a little older, we start to connect with myself, what it's like to be me. And I recognize that is my feeling. That is how I think about it. That is what I value. A quick example that I saw with the nieces and nephews at a family party once at my house, the youngest one was being teased because she's wearing purple. And the older cousins were teasing her. And all of a sudden, you know, she's disconnected alone. She's feeling bad. Her head drops, her eyes look down, and then she perks up. And she goes, you know what? I do like purple. Purple's my favorite color. I wish everybody wore purple. I wish everybody had purple hair. And her cousins kind of realized, well, there's nothing here. <laughs> and then they all played together. She got release from the pain of disconnection, release from the shame when she connected with herself. I think and that's that, important with recovery where people might feel disconnection because of their addiction and their behaviors and whatnot, uh -huh. but they can connect with themselves in recovery. And like how right. they view themselves with what I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing now. I like that I'm sober. I like that I'm. Yes. This is what I'm doing now. I like that I'm changing. I like that I'm not like that. Those, that's a way that someone can connect to themselves. And this is so important in the release of the shame is to connect with. I do like I am interested. This is my goal. And when we own that, there's release of that inhibiting emotion. That's a reconnect. Even though the disconnect may have been somewhere else, I get release when I reconnect. So the first option is safe other if they're available and vulnerable simultaneously. Second option is connecting with myself. Third option is connecting with truth. What's real? What's real whether I notice it or not? Uh, you know, gravity's real. I may not like it, but if I step off a cliff, I will find out that gravity's still in effect. <laughs> Many times we can help ourselves or others reduce shame by making a truth list. What do I know that's real? Um, and we can check with others. We can check authorities. We can check other resource, resources but we develop a list of what's real. And when we are experiencing that inhibiting shutdown or the pain of the shame, we can get that list out. I know some guys that they carry their little truth list in their billfold and they review it when they're feeling the shame. Two things happen as they connect with the truth, they start to connect with themselves also and they get relief. So connecting with the truth. I think that would be good for anxiety too. That's got to be a great one for anxiety because anxiety can, the what ifs, and, and you know that I talk about the what ifs. Oh, yeah. Plenty. But that can take you into so many directions of things that are not true, that are not currently happening, that are not real, that are worst case scenarios. That can send you off into a whole area. Absolutely. And connecting to the truth can help ground you and then help ground you with overcoming shame and a phrase i picked up from you is when there's that what if well what is right and that's connecting with truth what's real and that the reconnecting releases the inhibitory feature of shame now i can see what's underneath it 
and maybe it's fear, maybe it's anxiety of various types. Maybe it's even anticipation of something good, but I can't get to it until the shame is released. So the third option was connecting with what is the truth. The fourth option I refer to connecting to the person of God. For some people, this is a very personal God. For others, it's a higher power. For others, it's just that sense of transcendence, something bigger beyond me. And connecting with the person of God facilitates extending beyond self into a relationship with something greater than me that I can reflect on, I can share and receive from. So for some, um, in the Judeo-Christian heritage, they have the Psalms, for example. They find great comfort in reading about these experiences people a long time ago had, and how they shared what it was really like to be them, and how they heard God respond to them. Other sacred writings and different traditions have similar types of expressions of what it's like to be me and what the other shares back with me. That is a form of connecting. I know some who have uh, times of meditation um, develop different exercises to help visualize and sensory experience being with the higher power, with God, with the, um, this transcendent being that facilitates connecting outside of me with me. And that releases shame. Now, the challenge can be, I may try one and it's a dead end. I, I feel like I need to talk to somebody. I'm sinking. There's nobody. Well, I've got three options left. That's what I love about it is that it, it gives people options. I mean, I usually first introduce people. I kind of use the one of connecting with others that me and you talking about right now is an example of that. And, and they'll acknowledge that they, they feel, yeah, they feel somewhat better that they actually talked about it or acknowledged it. And I just often encourage them to just start going down the line or just start working with what you can like yes. it's, it's not that you have to have only one, but just start somewhere that you can start connecting. And the interesting part is I've, I haven't thought of this before, but as you went over those four ways, the basic recovery principles, those all agree with that. Yes. You know what I mean? Like connecting with others, there's a huge part of a recovery network, you know, yes. connecting with yourself is, you know, a part of doing what you need to do like day in, day out, one day at a time and, and connecting with what you're doing and changes you're making. And then the truth, you know, that taking accountability and acknowledging all that. And the last one of higher power that's talked about at a, a ton of support meetings. Yep. So the four ways of connecting is very much connected with a lot of recovery principles. Yes. And that the, the experience of being heard, even hearing myself, being understood by other or by self, that is inherently healing. It meets a deep human need we have to be understood, to be known, as well as to know another, to go beyond 
just me. And we see that that's central in individual therapy, group therapy, support groups, recovery groups. That's the central process. Yeah, so that's, I find that very valuable educating people on the four connections and then continuing to emphasize that, working on it, showing them when they are doing it so they, they realize it. And the impact it does have on shame is, is powerful. Mm-hmm. Now, really one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and this is, this is a hard one. And, you know, I've, I've had people talk to me about how long they've been, you know, with their addiction on and off active using, you know, that I've got people who've been using for 10, 20, 30 years even. Mm -hmm. Okay. And one of the things I see a lot of people struggle with is how do I overcome so much shame and all this guilt that has gone on for so long that I sometimes I can't keep track of how many times I've lied to someone or how many times I've manipulated someone or um, I wasn't around birthdays I've missed or birthdays I was high for like the amount of things that they realize has become so impacted by their addiction I see people almost feel like it's almost impossible to really overcome it all. And and some people, I feel like they go the other way and think, well, if I get sober, that kind of wipes it all away. Like that's kind of like a a sobriety is a get out of shame free card, Uh but there's a real balance somewhere in there between you know, how does someone begin to overcome, you know, years of some of this stuff, but also not thinking that there's just one thing they do to just kind of take it all away or wipe the slate clean? Like, mm-hmm. where do you begin to, to work with something like that? Yeah, um, there's so many scenarios that, that have these features. And each of us have to figure out how do I live with my own story? How do I have peace? How am I going to be able to pull together the various parts of my story? If I get a, once I'm sober, I get out a life free card, I'm cutting off a big chunk of me and throwing it away. That is not a solution that's going to last. In fact, that's very, I would suspect we're going to see a relapse and that's a coping style at a higher rate. In order to come to grips with my story, I have to connect with what's real. And some of that's really painful. So we learn how to have our emotions help us adapt rather than how to avoid our emotions. And we, when shame is being resolved by the reconnecting, and this is where groups and that counseling, therapeutic relationship, and building friendships with safe people. We're learning how to address the various emotions in me, as well as receive the emotions from you. Boundaries are so central here. What's me, what's not me? 
what I'm responsible for, what am I not? As we're moving through that, to be able to feel pain, recognizing pain as a signal, not a problem. Not a like pain, <laughs> just <laughs> for the record. I don't like it at all, but it's a signal. It's pointing to something rather than getting rid of the pain. I need to figure out what is the pain pointing to? What do I need to adjust? When we see people trying to flee from their own story, they're running away from pain, which increases their pain. Boy, that's fertile ground for relapse. Right, absolutely. So learning how to be with my own emotion, learning how to calm myself, resolve by reconnecting. It, how long does this take? And the answer is yes. It, it, it is a continual process across our lifetime that we grow in. There are places where we're going to need to address acknowledging where I've done damage and done wrong and what can I do to make amends. There's places where I'm going to need to say, I need to forgive me for I really hurt me. Yes, others I may confess to, but look the way I treated me. Do I let me off the hook? You probably can tell by my wandering answer, this is a very complex question. Yeah, but it, you know, it reminds me of this idea of, you know, people thinking or believing in like a pain-free life. And, yes. you, and, and pain's another topic you and I have had numerous discussions yes. about. Yes. Uh -huh. But I, I almost see shame mirroring that where people are believing like there's some idea or some way of living a shame-free life and that's not good you know like like living pain-free is yeah. not healthy even though like you said we don't like it we hate it we avoid it we we want to escape it i think shame shares that very same idea that people are looking for a way to live a shame-free life or to heal from it and move on and never go back but that is that is not accurate that's not true and believing that is more harm than good because believing that disconnects us from reality which produces more shame you know the person without shame is the sociopath you don't want that as a neighbor <laughs> the shame on the, on the positive side can help us self-regulate but it's the unresolved shame that can destroy right so what I encourage people to think of is I'm constantly monitoring where am I disconnected? How do I reconnect? And my need for connection never goes away. So I'm always involved in connecting, connecting with one or more of those four options. And that language is for one, I mean, tying it back to what we were first talking about earlier disconnecting and connecting you can teach that to kids yep you, you could teach them that right there but also that language eliminates a lot of the barriers to addressing shame like just recognizing that you feel disconnected that yes a lot of people can do that you don't have to yes. go into significant detail as to why or the type of person you are because you're disconnected or you don't have to do a historical you know expose on mm -hmm. why there's disconnection if you can 
feel the disconnection and recognize like where it is and even just what caused it, you can move on to connecting. You don't have to overcomplicate shame as much as it already can be. And that language helps very much able to do that. I sure have found that to be true. And everything I'm talking about that I do clinically or I do in teaching, I do in my personal life. My need to connect never <laughs> never goes away. I'm constantly involved in connecting. Yeah, there's there is so much to to dive into this topic, and we, we've talked about this for a long time, even before this. But but this platform is where I wanted to have you to to share about it, and talk about it again, because I know a lot of people that are struggling with substance use, people who love others who struggle with substance use, no matter where you are in that and and how you are impacted by it if you're trying to help people with it all across the board, you know, shame and guilt is something that all of us can relate to, but yet we have seen it ignored and you spent a lot of your career making it known, but also in the light of healing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I think needs to be brought to not just addiction, not just recovery, but to all these areas of, you know, human connection. Because that's what we need, connection. Right. So uh, the one thing is I, I do want to tell to tell listeners that Overcoming Guilt and Shame is, is the book you wrote. And you can find it on Amazon. And that has become my crash, crash course and my education on guilt and shame. This was one of the first books that I ever borrowed from your office. And I've let, I've let clients read it. I've recommended it. So if anyone wants like a great understanding of the concepts of guilt and shame, this is definitely the book to, to purchase. So I actually read it again to review kind of what we've talked about, but also in preparing for the presentation I'm going to be doing on guilt and shame and gambling. Mm -hmm. This was one of my big resources for putting all that together. So definitely want to thank you for, for doing that. Well, you're a great colleague and thank you for bringing me on today. I appreciate sharing. Yeah. So take a, take a look at the book. Uh, the things that we were talking about with guilt and shame, a lot more to talk about going ahead of it, but I think one of the most important takeaways is the idea of a, a shame-free life is, is not ideal. It's, it's not how people are going to heal. It's not how we are going to build the relationships we need and want. We need to learn from it in order to connect and have good relationships with one another. So thank you again, uh, Dan, for joining us. And as always, I hope people learn something from listening.